Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihir Atzazan. The 2003 invasion and occupation of Iraq resulted in massive death and destruction and fueled sectarian tensions, which culminated in a violent civil war. More than 300,000 Iraqis have died from direct war violence, and 9.2 million people have been internally displaced. This according to Brown University's Coastal War Project. The brutal invasion and occupation of Iraq entrenched the country in a cycle of sectarian violence and impacted every aspect of life in Iraq, from governance to health care, infrastructure, economy, and the environment. In a recent piece in The Guardian, one of our today's guests, Professor Sinan Antoun, writes, quote, I had always hoped to see the end of Saddam's dictatorship at the hands of the Iraqi people, not courtesy of a new colonial project that would dismantle what had remained of the Iraqi state and replace it with a regime based on ethno-sectarian dynamics, plunging the country into violent chaos and civil wars, end of quote. This week, we bring you the first part of our conversation about Iraq. 20 years after the invasion. We are joined by two guests. Sinan Antoun is an award-winning Iraqi poet and novelist and an associate professor at New York University's Gallatin School and co-founder and co-editor of Jadalia. His most recent novel is The Book of Collateral Damage. Dr. Omar Sirri is a research associate in the Department of Politics and International Studies at the University of London School of Oriental and African Studies. His doctoral dissertation, Scarecrows of the State, an Ethnography of Security and Checkpoints in Contemporary Baghdad, was named co-winner of the 2022 Malcolm H. Kerr Dissertation Award in the Social Sciences from the Middle East Studies Association. They spoke with Shahram Aramir. Sinan and uh, Omar, we'll discuss the details later in our conversation, but as an opener and a brief overview, 20 years after the full-scale invasion of the country, how would you describe today's Iraq and the major problems facing its population? I think it's very obvious for anyone who follows the news or is an observer that Iraq is saddled with very serious problems on every level, economically, in terms of safety and security, environmentally, but also more importantly, which encompasses all of these, is the well-being and the rights of the citizens who live there. But I just want to say that even those of us who knew that the invasion and occupation of Iraq is going to spell catastrophe for Iraq and for the region. The level of destruction has exceeded the most pessimistic accounts. And I always remember whenever we come to the anniversary, I remember an essay written by an Iraqi woman in Al-Hayat, which is now defunct. It's merely poetic, but it says a lot that she said, whatever type of Iraq will emerge after this invasion. And she wrote this before the invasion, it will be an Iraq that is so disfigured that is difficult to recognize. Omar, you just came back from Iraq, in fact, not long ago. What do you have to add to what Sinan just shared with us? You know, those of us who have been following, reading about, writing 
visiting Iraq for a number of years now, since uh, 2003, have been privy to and have watched a number of stages, what Sinan calls acts of destruction, this being the latest one. But others have called kind of cycles of violence, cycles of destruction over the last two decades in, in particular, with the invasion, occupation, the outbreak of vicious civil violence, predominantly in, in Baghdad, but elsewhere, followed by the slow rise of Daesh, the so-called Islamic State, in the middle of the 2010s, and the war that that brought, the return of U.S. troops, if they ever really left, the killing of tens of thousands of civilians in various parts of the country. You ask me the question of the state of the country today, you have a particular form of stability that many people try to point to. This word has gotten a lot of play. Stability, normality over the last 20 years, we keep coming back to this word. And no doubt we are living in a moment of that now. Some say it's far more durable than at any other moment in the last 20 years. But at the same time, Sinan and I have spoken about this and others. It's a moment to reflect on perhaps not what has been destroyed over the last 20 years, but what has been built, what has been created. And to the extent to which we agree that there is some form of stability as if <laughs> as if the bar i mean imagine where the bar has been right how low the bar has been it is a moment i think to ask what has been created and i think what has been created as far from any kind of political social ideal anywhere in the world the privatization of higher education and healthcare the gutting of public forms of social provision in these areas the privileging of hyper-consumerism through the construction of shopping malls across the capital city in areas that were zoned residential or public parks. So no form of planning, rapid hyper-construction of Baghdad specifically, where I just returned from. And I've spent most of my time in, in my visits and, and living in the country for the last few years. The fact that you have an urban plan that's on the books, you have zones, you have regulations, and they're just not enforced. They're bypassed. People pay to play to get zonings removed or changed, and all for private profit, predominantly from and among the political economic elite who run the small coterie of parties and individuals who run governance in, in the country. So if we were going to talk about stability and talk about a new, different, yet a different period, different cycle, if you will, the question becomes what has been created? And I think <laughs> by any measure, what has been created is a, a system, a set of political conditions and social conditions that are far from ideal in virtually every sector and every aspect of everyday life in most areas of the country. Omar, both opponents and proponents of the U.S.-British invasion of and occupation of Iraq have cited various reasons for the invasion. Among these reasons are... Um, Iraqi regime's position of weapons of mass destruction, a democracy-building project, controlling Iraq's vast petroleum reserves, demonstration effect of a war in line with new conservative historian Michael Ledeen's argument that every 10 years or so, the United States needs to pick up some small, crappy little country and throw it against the wall just to show the world we mean business, and that's in quotations. What are your thoughts? What did the Bush administration hope to achieve in this invasion? The short answer is, given the number of factors you just outlined and named, it is incredibly overdetermined. By that, I mean you can pick 
a number of different reasons, including the ones you mentioned and others that were used as a form of justification for the invasion and occupation. I think I very much subscribe to the notion that it was a cocktail of reasons, a motley collection of justifications or a set of justifications from and proffered by a motley crew of political operatives from Rumsfeld with his own agenda around the U.S. military, Wolfowitz with his own agenda, in part grounded in, I, I think, the defense of, of Israel and others in his uh, ilk, who very much believed in that. Others who had corporate interests at play, the kind of the Cheney argument, if you will, the private profit interests. And then you, of course, had the democracy proponents. And then, of course, you had the WMD folk. So you had this collection of reasons and others, I know I'm missing, that come together to justify a single foreign policy goal. Of course, Iraq is not a small country, and that's where that description falls a bit flat. Of course, to say nothing of oil, which you also mentioned, but Iraq is not a small country that continues to grow in population, is a significant and was a significant player in the region, and uh, was deemed a threat, was deemed a serious geopolitical player in the region. And so on some level, it was a big target for these proponents of a particular form of U.S. foreign policy. I would add two other factors here to consider. One is the context of 9-11, which structures this whole discussion. Sure, it was an opportunity to advance a U.S. foreign policy that was on the books pre-9-11, but uh, we can't forget the ways in which that played on the American psyche, the U.S. psyche, in terms of its role in the world and the way it got opportunized by these political actors to advance their, their agendas. They were able to do it in part because of just how spectacular, and I use that word very specifically, that event was and the ways in which it played on U.S. political social consciousness. This is a, a huge factor that we can't forget in terms of how it was used to justify. Sinan, on that point, that 9-11 context, that is true. But when you go back in 1997, there was a foreign policy lobby group named Project for New American Century that was founded. This group's thinking was that the United States should play a near messianic role in the world. The role of this group seems to have been instrumental in Iraq Liberation Act of 1998, which basically stated it should be the policy of the United States to support efforts to remove the regime headed by Saddam Hussein from power in Iraq and to promote the emergence of a democratic government to replace that regime. This is a policy change that then-Senator Joe Biden voted in favor of it and President Clinton signed into it. Also, just prior to the September 11 events, a leading neoconservative writer, Charles Krauthammer, argued in favor of the United States' unilateral policies in a piece in the Weekly Standard. He's basically argued that we are not just any hegemon, we run a uniquely benign imperium. What were the factors behind this policy decision in 1998? And do you think that was, in a way, the genesis of the 2003 invasion? Yes, I think exactly like Omar said, it's, this group was one of part of the cocktail, part of the many factions who were pushing for the invasion of Iraq. So that group of conservative neocons already in the early 90s also spurred by Ahmed Chelebi, who had already started working his way through the Beltway. And his whole idea was that if you give me consensus in Washington, D.C., I will deliver Iraq for you. But 
For a lot of those folks that you mentioned, it was eliminating Iraq as a potential future threat to the balance of power in the region and as a threat to Israel. And I think Clinton and the others were pressured. But of course, that was just a policy. And 9-11, in a way, because of the massive paradigm shift and the popular sentiments as well, then made it possible to rush to war. But I want to emphasize the whole idea of American vengeance. If we go back and see the level of support for the war, you know, around the anniversary, a lot of people want to remember that there were massive protests. Yes, there were in New York and San Francisco, but by and large, there was huge support for this invasion. And this support continued even after all the cracks began to show. So there is something about American militarism, and there is something about the sense of imperial vengeance after 9-11. And I hate to quote him, but I have to. And there is a clip that everyone should watch, especially Americans, US citizens on YouTube, where Charlie Rose asks Thomas Friedman, why did we go to Iraq? Why did we hit Iraq? And Friedman says, Simply, we, and I hate this, we gone to Saudi Arabia or to Pakistan, but we did Iraq because we could. Of course, there was the strike against Afghanistan. But I think striking Iraq, considering Iraq's material importance, but just Iraq's symbolic importance in the Arab and Islamic world. So it was to make a statement. And it's also that I've read it several times that after bombing Afghanistan, the U.S. ran out of targets. So Iraq had to be the next target. I think Rumsfeld himself said I think they told him something like, we don't have any more targets. And he said, just bomb Iraq. So the sense of imperial vengeance is very important, I think. And because 9-11 was such an injury also on a collective level. So, you know, it had to be restored. Just as, by the way, 1991, that other forgotten war and how it was used to kind of restore the sense of Americanness to kind of heal the wounds of Vietnam if they could ever be healed. I can't agree with Sinan more. I want to add two points here. One, in terms of context, you have the essentially the end of the Cold War, the end of the 80s, early 90s, right? And so there's this moment, a number of years, where some make this argument that you had a kind of um, a questioning around uh, what the single hegemon in the world now, the single superpower left, how it should be using its force for good. I mean, don't forget that there was this debate around the the responsibility to protect this notion that was being advanced that if a country or if a leader is uh, killing his, usually almost always his own people, that the Western world has a responsibility to protect, to intervene. So there are these big questions around how should essentially NATO forces and Western powers use their military might for good, quote unquote. Almost a bit of a rudderless way of thinking. Our big bad enemy, Soviet Union, has fallen. What do we do now? This is part of that context, I think. In terms of your point around PNAC, Project for New American Century, let's not forget that that, the Iraq Liberation Act that gets advanced by that collective is advanced and pushed forward and signed by Bill Clinton at the height of his own political scandal, which was the Lewinsky affair in 1998. The reason I make this point is because I would argue you cannot separate the U.S. foreign policy from U.S. domestic politics. And that, to me, is a moment where Clinton is in a moment where he has uh, very little political support and they're able to advance a 
a foreign policy initiative that he will get on board with because he has very little political capital at that moment. Not to say that he didn't agree with it. He also bombed uh, Iraq <laughs> that year, the year before. So it's not to say that he wasn't, he was forced to sign and very much believed in it. And this is where U.S. foreign policy, as much as it is influenced by US domestic politics, the imperial machine, very much Republicans and Democrats coalesce together and come together to advance the imperial machine to argue otherwise would be fallacious, simply not the case. But there is a U.S. domestic political component to this. What it stuns me in this history is how George Bush gets reelected in 2004. And this is where I think Sinan's point is very resonates for me, is that the American public voted him back in a year and a half, almost after the invasion and occupation, when the cat is totally out of the bag. No WMD have been located. These infamous WMD are nowhere to be found. And they still elect this man back to power. He swift, sure, he swift boats his way to victory, but uh, he's still very much, uh, you know, elected and is back for another four years. And only two years later, when uh, in the midst of this quagmire, quote unquote, in 2006, that he gets what he refers to, Bush refers to himself in the infamous press conference the day after the midterm elections, he received a thumping in the midterm elections. Why I mention this is because there was a push for the writing, the drafting, and the passing by referendum of a new constitution in 2005 in Iraq, in 2004 and 2005. One of the key reasons why that was rushed by U.S. officials was to show progress in the occupation, to show progress in the occupation, and then pass on the country to these diasporic elites who came on the backs of U.S. military tanks to run the country, pass the country over to them, and walk away in time for the midterm elections. So there are these domestic political considerations that are at the heart of, or one of the hearts of imperial interventions, Iraq being here the exemplar. Sinan, there's also this notion of a quote-unquote civilizing mission that is implicit in some of the narratives about the invasion of Iraq. In fact, some of the writings and discussions on the anniversary of this invasion reminds me of Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness and its main protagonist, Charles Marlowe, who begins his journey in the 19th century Congo with certain naivete, but he's shocked by the horrors of colonialism. Needless to say, Marlowe is a racist European man with a sense of superiority who refers to uh, the African natives as savages and the European colonialists as pilgrims. As a whole, the novella is more concerned about the adverse impact of colonization on the psyche of colonizers than the death and devastation unleashed on the native Africans. Senan, can you talk about this concept of superiority and whether you think there is some merit to this analogy in the case of Iraq? Well, of course, this is a settler colonial society. But like many settler colonial societies, there is, of course, always the denial of the colonial aspect of it. And to be honest with you, when I first arrived in this country in 91, where I come from in our part of the world, colonial usually has very negative connotations, right? <laughs> because of what colonialism did to the world. Colonial has positive connotations. It's uh, architectural style and other. But there is no doubt whatsoever that by and large, a lot of citizens can only see Iraq through the colonial prism that they're unaware of. And there are way too many examples, but I give the one example, which I've used a lot, that crystallizes all of this, is that Iraq and Afghanistan are referred to as Indian country in military parlance. And that a lot of military operations are given nomenclature from Native American history. You know, if you see the clip that was released by WikiLeaks, the clip that shows Americans 
shooting from the air civilians and journalists. One of the code names for the gunship is Crazy Horse, which is a Native American name. But throughout American literary culture, you can see how, because you, you spoke of the concern with the effects on the colonizers sentiment. If you look at a lot of the works written, cultural products, it's the soldiers who are the victims. And I'm not denying that they are in a way victims of a class-based society, but the Iraqi civilians who are the primary victims of the war disappear, and the soldiers themselves are the victims. And you can see it even in popular culture, or you can see it in Hollywood. The Hurt Locker film was celebrated as being anti-war when it's a pro-war film. But the question that was repeated time and again in the media and by journalists and by others is this, that somehow, no matter what, the U.S. must be doing something good in Iraq. I mean, sorry to mention an anecdote, but five years after the invasion, Charlie Rose on PBS decided maybe it was time to interview some Iraqis and Iraqi Americans. He was baffled after talking to me, and he asked me, like, so are you telling me the U.S. did nothing good in Iraq? And this genuine question tells you so much about this colonial mentality. And as Omar said, in a way, which I totally agree with, you always have to look at foreign policy as interlinked with domestic policy. But what the U.S. as an empire does abroad and how citizens view that has a lot to do with the national myth of the founding of the U.S., and how the U.S., the, in the national myth, how race and gender, of course, are interweaved into that. So there is no doubt that the colonial mentality and the colonial framework overdetermines much of how many U.S. citizens see or even don't see Iraq. I mean, going back to the previous question about WMDs, when WMDs are the central focus and the justification for this invasion, and then they're not found, and then they become a joke that Bush cracks at the annual White House Correspondents' Dinner. So what type of barbarism is it that this just becomes a joke? Something that was the justification for a war that annihilated the lives of hundreds of thousands of people becomes a passing joke. But this is normal for settler colonial society. Omar, in terms of constructing an intellectual basis for the invasion, how influential were academics such as Fouad Ajami and Bernard Lewis with his portrayal of the region and the existential conflict between Islam and the West? Needless to say, both of these individuals supported the invasion even though Bernard Lewis tried to say that he was not fully in support of it later on. Big question. And part of this, uh, my mind immediately turns to asking Sinan the same question, which I'm keen to hear his thoughts on this, I think in part because he was engaged in some of these uh, intellectual, in the intellectual milieu at that time in the U.S. particularly. I'll answer this by one anecdote, perhaps. And uh, well, I'll say, let's not forget there were liberal academics who were supportive of the invasion, Michael Ignatieff being one, right? Who was a you know, prominent Harvard academic turned, eventually failed Canadian politician years after and you know, issued a mea culpa apologizing essentially for his or saying he got it wrong. But what I think is intriguing about that moment in the invasion occupation was liberal academics who fashioned themselves as some form of center left who were in support of invading, illegally invading, to the extent the word illegal matters here, illegally invading and occupying a country on the grounds of, well, whatever 
reason you want to pick from the ones we discussed 15 minutes ago. That's why the ways in which the war was sold on multiple fronts, justified on multiple fronts, matters. It was a menu of options. How do you want to justify your position? Pick responsibility to protect WMD, oil, U.S. domestic politics, securing the state of Israel. And so it brought together this collection of, of individuals. And to me, the liberals who were on board, I find to be particularly intolerable because they make their arguments in defense of humanity and the liberal individual. And that uh, when it's these civilians who are going to be bearing the brunt of it. And they should know better, of course, to know that uh, you simply cannot and should not do this. But of course, to Sinan's point about the colonial mindset, actually, you can't separate out settler colonialism from the liberal mindset in these contexts, the US, Canada, and other places. The anecdote I give you is I just returned from Baghdad. And two weeks ago, I had a, had a very impromptu conversation about the works of Samuel Huntington with a student of, of politics who was speaking to me quite seriously about the arguments that Samuel Huntington makes in Clash of Civilizations. And make no mistake, this student of politics is well-read, had read his uh, Huntington's earlier work from the 60s, had read this work, and was essentially engaging with me in a conversation about the merits of the Clash of Civilizations argument that's been made. Of course, he stopped short of knowing the, the context in which Huntington's making this argument of uh, the oncoming conflict between Islam and the West, insofar as he is essentially defending the merits of this argument to me. And I had to very calmly and with respect push back and say, the merits of this man's arguments are grounded in racist thinking. We're simply not taught this critically enough that it's grounded in the idea that Muslims are going to be coming in waves to the West and essentially invading our shores with a different way of life. And we have to be guarding against this. Is <laughs> makes no mention of the fact that it's the West that are bombing these places that are forcing people to leave their homes from even before 91, the support of Saddam Hussein in the war against Iran and the Iraq-Iran war and the beginning of that and the support. And if you show photos to students, by the way, today, this is personal anecdotes told to me by historians who say when they show the photo of Saddam Hussein shaking the hand of Donald Rumsfeld in the mid 80s, mm -hmm. they're stunned. They can't believe it. The amnesia, the forgetting, and it's happening already now of the last 20 years, to say nothing of the 80s, the forgetting, the willful forgetting of this history and the ways in which academics are co-imbricated in this military, of course, the military industrial complex, but this, these military adventures, it's justified on these ideas that are proffered as intellectualism, but it's political ideology masked in thoughtful contribution. When in fact, it's justifying the murder of black and brown people in various parts of the world. Iraq is the latest example of that. We're in total agreement. And I want to stress that I think for most of us, our anger is more with the so-called liberals and left of center because the neocons and the conservatives will always cheer for war. But let's not forget that, for example, the New Yorker, David Remnick, and this is just one example of many, they were for the war. And not only that, just to give you an example of how ingrained this imperial colonial mentality that a lot of the folks who opposed the war, they did not oppose the war because it was barbaric and unjustified. They opposed it on technical reasons that it would not be good for the US policy, blah, blah, blah. They weren't against war. They're not against invasions and colonizing other countries if it's done in the right context and if produces the desired results. 
And many who flipped then later and changed their mind about the invasion and the war also did so just because it would not be good for US interests. And you see this also continuing now with this discourse about the war being a mistake. So many people are still convinced that occupying and colonizing other countries as an idea is not a bad thing. You just have to do it the right way. Also, how closed off media outlets are and that because of Orientalism and because of racism, you only need one Iraqi to tell you what all Iraqis think. One Iraqi American cheerleader for the war, and it was enough for op-ed writers and columnists to say, my Iraqi friend says X. I kid you not. But I just want to also add how colonialism and war always involves plunder of so many kinds. And since we're speaking of academics, there was plunder of Iraqi archives aplenty under the aegis of Kanan Makiya and his Iraq Memory Foundation. Thousands and thousands of documents and archives belonging to Iraqis and to the Iraqi state were transferred to the Hoover Institute in Stanford. And many academics had no qualms about going and using these looted documents to advance their careers and to produce scholarship that disproportionately keeps focusing on the Republic of Fear and Saddam Hussein and the Ba'ath. Fuad Ajami, you brought him up, he summarized this mentality in his title of his book about the war, the foreigner's gift. For a lot of these folks, the United States gave a gift to Iraq. Will Iraqis know how to use this gift or not? That's the question. And Makia and others, some Iraqis even, internalize this logic by thinking, you know, it's the Iraqis' fault that the occupation and invasion did not go the right way because they misused the opportunity that was given to them. Shahnam, if I could add this notion of uh, mistakes, this to me is uh, egregious. And especially after the invasion, during the occupation, two, three years into the occupation, you had journalists pointing to the mistakes made by the occupiers, the debathification law, the dismantling of the Iraqi military. These continue to be seen as uh, egregious mistakes by the occupation, not framed as crimes, Right, of course, but in never questioning the original sin of the invasion. And that to me, why the, the people who are writing in support of the invasion in that is where the action really lies, so to speak, and less on the, of course, what comes after the framing of, of mistakes and what could have gone right and what went wrong, right? Articles <laughs> literally titled What Went Wrong in Iraq. These were shortly after the invasion by academics and I have to say, as someone who did his studies in political science, shamefully that these most of the people who, who I am familiar with who've done this work are political scientists who are arguing for particular versions of seeing the world on ideological grounds. And what I think is also particularly sinister here is that coming from academia, from scholarship, particularly in political science, there's works that argue that we need to support authoritarianism because it's a form of stability. And so, you know, again, the mistake was that we destabilized the region and by bringing down the authoritarian leader who actually offered stability. <laughs> this tells you just how warped these views are. One breath advancing democratic aims and at the same time arguing essentially in favor for authoritarian stability, particularly we see this most recently, I guess, in Syria and the debates around Syria. On the point of archives and plunder, this is very, very important and on media in particular, we give a lot of attention, and rightfully so, to the ways in which particular journalists argued for, wrote articles essentially justifying the invasion, advancing the U.S. administration, Bush administration's narrative, 
Judith Miller gets a lot of attention, rightfully so, splashing uh, stories on the New York Times' front page on in this regard. But we should also fast forward to the scandal at the New York Times with the theft of what's been called the ISIS file by a New York Times journalist, Rukmini Karamaki, after Daesh was defeated in certain areas, particularly in, in Mosul and other areas, scooped up hundreds, if not thousands of documents and took them out of the country and wrote stories and made a career off of these documents with no permission from anyone to take these documents out of the country. And not simply making a career in the written realm, got exclusive podcasts, you know, with the New York Times, you know, famous daily podcast. It's been running for years now and uh, made a career off of this. And only years later, did an internal investigation determine that, in fact, some of what she did was wrong. Some of what she covered was uh, ethically questionable. It was still never in the context of the theft of those documents. The pilfering of these documents and in the argument, oh, there was no authority, as if it gives you permission. This terra nullius, right? Like there's, <laughs> it's an open land. There's no governing apparatus. Who am I supposed to ask? I'm just going to take these documents and make a career. This is journalism at its worst. And anyone who <laughs> argues and defends of what occurred there simply does not care about the people who live under this. They don't care about the civilians. They don't care about the actual forms of authority that you're subjected to. In other words, their bodies and their lives are viewed not as valuable as your own and as your own career. The point here is that the colonial mindset that seeps from academia and scholarship occurs in journalism, occurs in governance, in all forms of authority, in forms of a, a political and cultural and social capital that is advanced in the U.S. in various institutions. And that essentially is the complexity, but also the simplicity of what it is we're debating here today. I just well, want to add, when I challenged her, this uh, Rukmini on Twitter, she blocked me. And then someone told her, you shouldn't block this guy. So she unblocked me. And then I told her, who gave you the authorization? Did you ask? She said, if you really want to help Iraq, you should work with me. <laughs> Stunning. <laughs> Stunning. And about this colonial mentality, Shahram, at the highest levels of academia, in a, at a party in Brooklyn years ago, right after ISIS, some uh, scholar from an Ivy League, and he asked me, where are you from? I say, New York. He says, no, no, where are you really from? I say, from Iraq. He's like, oh, it's really sad what's happening in Iraq. He's like, you know, I don't care about the people. People are replaceable. But the relics that the ISIS is destroying, these are irreplaceable. And that, I think, says so much about settler colonial societies and how they view barbarians in distant lands. And that's award-winning Iraqi poet and novelist Sinan Antoun speaking with Shahram Aghamir about the reasons behind the 2003 invasion and occupation of Iraq. We also heard from Dr. Omar Siri, who's a research associate at the University of London School of Oriental and African Studies. We'll hear more from our guests after a short break. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.
I know you mentioned the Iraqi opposition in exile and their role in this invasion. I'm talking about the likes of Ahmad Chalabi, as you mentioned, Kanan Makia. Incidentally, the Republic of Fear, I should mention, was the book authored by Kanan Makia under a different name, of course. The Dawah Party and Iran-based Supreme Council for Islamic Revolution in Iraq. How decisive was the role they played in pushing for a war? Just briefly, I think, I mean, on the one hand, a lot of us Iraqis are, of course, very angry. And and those of us who, who do that denounce the roles that were played by these folks. But also, one should not exaggerate. But definitely, I mean, Chelebi had extensive networks of relationships in Washington, D.C. with senators and others and so on and so forth. And that played a role in lobbying inside within Washington, D.C. and the Beltway. I don't want to keep mentioning his name. Others provided some of the, we can't even call it intellectual fodder, but some kind of backing. But I think that when empires and when colonial powers decide to invade, it's not that difficult to find disgruntled, exiled ex-politicians to serve as a front or to populate whatever structure they want to impose. I think what's important is to go back to what was mentioned earlier, and it's true, is that most of these figures that came back had no constituency inside whatsoever. And I should say, and I mean, Omar and I discussed this at Georgetown in our conversations. The other issue is not only did they not have any constituency, most of these figures did not have any real experience in managing or handling any structure or any institution. That's an important point to remember to understand then the extent of the chaos. I don't think you have an invasion and occupation without the Iraqi exiles. I'm not trying to re-debate the past here, but I, I simply don't think you can. They're that instrumental in what occurs. Let's not forget these organizations were funded by the U.S. government and the CIA for years before the invasion. So they were on the U.S. ticket for a number of years, kind of waiting for this moment to occur. They were also debating the future in rudimentary terms, the future of the country if Saddam fell, kind of again justifying them along ethno-sectarian lines. But the argument that Reynad Mansour at Chatham House makes in the Peace and Foreign Affairs essentially that these exiles had no constituency. They had no popular support. They were unknown to those who lived inside the country and who lived particularly under the most egregious sanctions regime that led to the the deaths of hundreds of thousands of Iraqis, uh, predominantly children, that we know know about and has been discussed, you know, and the infamous comments about that by Madeleine Albright. They had no lived reality, lived experiences inside the country before they came back. And so on some level, the ethno-sectarian system that they delivered, bought into hook, line, and sinker and delivered, they needed, essentially, in order to govern, precisely because there's no public that supports them. So in other words, they must be supported along identitarian grounds, even if the political public, the public as a unit, does not see itself as as divided along those lines politically. They needed that political system, way of governance, techniques of rule to be implemented precisely because they had no other way of gaining popular support. So a couple of final points on this. One, Kenan Makia gets a lot of play, rightfully so, because a lot of uh, criticism, for lack of a better word, rightfully so, in part because there is no mea culpa. 
There is not even an attempt to think back and say, I got this one wrong. Ten years after the invasion, he's sitting at Chatham House at the 10-year mark of the invasion occupation and stands proudly up and defends his view that this needed to happen and wrote proudly in the Boston Globe 10 years ago that the Arab uprisings of 2011 would not have happened without the Iraq invasion and occupation. In the most egregious reframing, rewriting, historical revisionism, I find, I mean, someone who prides himself as some sort of pseudo-intellectual with this book that gains a popular acclaim, at least acclaim amongst the U.S. government officials leading in advancing uh, invasion, to claim that the invasion helped create the uprisings, when in fact, of course, doing a complete disservice, completely erasing the agency of the millions of citizens who took to the streets across capitals, across the, the Arab world, or Arab Muslim world, in these places, from, from Yemen to Syria to Tunis to, to Libya, to erase their agency and say, oh, it was us. It was my support and the invasion that led to them taking to the streets. When in fact, the uprisings were arguably, and I think convincingly, a rebuke of U.S. foreign policy in the region that is grounded in the support of dictators and authoritarian leaders. And so after decades of these practices, people took to the streets saying, enough, bring it all down. And he has the audacity to stand up in the newspapers in the U.S. and the audience in London and say, no, no, we got it right. And if it were not for us, we wouldn't have seen these changes. Remarkable. And one of his uh, key allies in his uh, archive project, the Iraq Memory Foundation, was Mustafa Kalami, the project that Sinan just spoke about earlier, who many years later ends up becoming the head of the Iraqi intelligence agency in Iraq. Mustafa Kalami becomes the head of the intelligence and then later becomes the prime minister selected after the uprising in 2019, 2020, which we haven't spoken about uh, and we should. Because that uprising in 2019 and 2020, one of the biggest, the biggest Iraqi popular mobilization in decades that brings down a government is a direct result of what was created in 2003 and justified by the likes of Makia and others who claim that the ethno-sectarian political system was the way to govern. And in fact, the uprising, the revolutionary moment that occurred was a complete reaction to all of that, to what's been built. And so Kalami ends up becoming prime minister on the backs of and owed his premiership to the revolutionaries in the streets. And then two years in power gets sucked into willingly, not likely willingly, into a very corrupt political system where him and his aides are accused of rampant corruption and the use of torture. This is, again, one of the liberals. This is the U.S.'s man in the Iraqi government. Once again, the U.S supports an individual, not the political institutions in the right way, but the individuals who can guarantee some form of stability in U.S. interests, and ends up leading a government that practices the same kinds of political techniques, violence, corruption, that all the others have performed before him. And so now we are under a, yet another new prime minister. And this is not an endorsement of the prime minister, but simply a fact. It's the first time in 20 years that Iraq has had a prime minister who lived in Iraq before 2003, who lived, was living under the former regime up until 2003. The rest of them who held that position came in on the backs of U.S. tanks. If you speak to people who are living in the country, will tell you on some level there's value to that. How that will manifest in their everyday life is yet to, yet to be seen.
this point about Canon Makia's comments with respect to the impact of the um, invasion of Iraq on what we know as Arab Spring or the uprisings in the Middle East and North Africa kind of reminds me of this thing that two decades after this U.S.-led invasion, there are politicians and analysts who argue that without a military intervention by foreign powers, either Saddam Hussein or one of his sons would still be ruling over Iraq. That whole proposition is problematic in terms of a method and approach to history. But apart from that, when you look at 1991 in the immediate aftermath of defeat of Iraq's military and their forced retreat from Kuwait, there was a significant uprising against the regime in Iraq that was crushed brutally by Saddam Hussein's regime. This uprising by itself teaches us something about the ability of people to change their own destiny instead of relying on outside powers. Maybe you can tell us what the uprising was about, their expectations of uh, the United States, and the lessons that we can learn from that. Sinan? This question always comes up. I mean, the uprising, as you said, came after the defeat of the Iraqi army in Kuwait at the hands of the U.S.-led coalition of more than 30 countries. And the spark started with one of the withdrawing soldiers, I think, on a tank who turned his barrel against one of Saddam's murals and bombed that. But the uprising now has been appropriated by the mostly Shiite-dominated parties, but it was not a sectarian uprising. It was an uprising that took place in 16 of Iraq's 18 provinces. Because also after the long campaign of bombing, in a way, state was weakened. I remember very well, even in Baghdad, there was graffiti on all of the walls saying down with Saddam. And the cars of the security police that were at the crossroads and some of the squares withdrew. And what's important to remember is that Bush Sr., appeared on radio, and I remember very well hearing him say, it is now up to the Iraqi people to take matters into their own hands. And people took the words of the leader of the most powerful country in the world seriously. So I think, you know, it was not just his words, of course. It was the anger at the defeat and the dictatorship and years and years and years of lack of of freedom, but very courageous People went on the street and defied a very brutal regime. Sadly, back then, we didn't have social media and, and none of that is recorded, except, of course, there are clips here and there. And for two, three days, there was no statement from the Iraqi regime on the media. There was nothing. Of course, we were living without electricity and so on and so forth. But at the Safwan tent where the United States and Iraq signed the ceasefire agreement, the Iraqi regime agreed to all of the demands of the United States, all of them, which were horrendous for Iraq's future economically and otherwise. And the generals had one request from Schwarzkopf, sorry, it's a long story, but it's important, to use helicopter gunships to transfer the wounded. Later, of course, Schwarzkopf in his memoir said, oh, he didn't think that Saddam was going to use those gunships for anything else, which is ridiculous, of course. And then Bush and others retreated after two, three days, saying that actually, you know, the operation had fulfilled its objective, which was liberating Kuwait, and that they did not interfere in internal matters. And I think that was a sign for the Iraqi regime that while it has been defanged of its military power regionally, the United States and 
the UK and others regime to stay. And this is evidence also by the fact that the Republican Guard units that were the shield of the regime were not really hurt by the bombing. So after three or four days of silence, Saddam Hussein appeared on radio and warned his enemies that there will be a crackdown. And there was a crackdown, particularly in the south. And tens of thousands of Iraqis were gunned down by these gunships and killed and put in mass graves under the watchful eyes of the United States, which had actually occupied already a part of Iraq. So later, after 2003, these mass graves are discovered and they are used by U.S. media to kind of justify the war retroactively. Of course, most of the viewers, especially Americans, do not know that these mass graves were established under the watchful eye of the United States. Going back to your earlier thing about this either or, this Manichaean view, I mean, had there not been war, Saddam Hussein and his sons would still be in power. That's just unacceptable in a way. And I think the Arab uprisings have shown that just as this 1991 uprising, had you told anyone months before that, would there be an uprising in Iraq? They would have told you, no, it's impossible. And by the way, most of the so-called experts and academics a few months before the Arab uprisings were telling us that there will never be uprisings because of whatever cultural and civilizational reasons. But we go back to, sadly, desperate people believe the promises of liberal democracies in the global north and take them seriously. But then, of course, they're left alone under the bombers of a dictatorial regime to be slaughtered, whether in Iraq or Syria or elsewhere, because it's the rule that these liberal democracies support tyrants. And sorry, just to go back to an earlier point about the complicity of academics. After the toppling of the Qaddafi regime, you learned of all of these academics from England and the United States who were going to Libya and who were commissioned to write positive stories about Qaddafi and his sons. And by the way, it's in the late 80s as well. A lot of US academics were writing very positive stories about the Saddam Hussein regime that he was the strong man of the region and he's a buffer and so on and so forth. Shahram, if I could for a minute respond to some of what Sinan said, if it's all right. First, he mentioned at the beginning that uh, the ways in which the 91 uprising has been appropriated by Shia political parties, and I think that's right. And I think it's used in part to justify the ethno-sectarian political system that was built, right? That is essentially led by a kind of Shia-led government. I don't find these primordial terms very useful to use, but they are accurate to describe how I think these uh, figures are viewing their positions and the governing structures they've built. In other words, the crushing of the uprising is used as a justification that no one can be trusted but us to govern ourselves. And uh, we need to maintain this, this political system that uses sectarian identity to build these cleavages to allow us to remain in the seat of power. Why that is ironic to say, say the least is because the 2019-2020 uprising, if we're talking about uprisings, was in the center and southern part of the country and led predominantly by youth. And in the southern, you know, southern Iraq is a predominantly Shia part of the country. So it was a disaffected youth, predominantly Shia, I would argue, by demographics that were taking to the streets, calling for the downfall of the very political system that their leaders were telling them is there for their protection. There is a remarkable comparison between how we think about the politics of uprising and the ways in which it's appropriated. Point number two, Sinan obviously touched on the point about um, the political agreement with the U.S. and the use of helicopters to, to crush that uh, uprising in the face of what Bush comes on the radio to say. There is a sanctions regime that then comes into effect after the, the Iraqi defeat. And we know the effects of those sanctions. We spoke about them earlier. 
But the point here is that it was as early as 1993 that the UN documented the effects of those sanctions. And I'm quoting from Joy Gordon's article. She's written a book about this, but she has an article in, in Merip where she writes and she quotes from the UN's World Food Program and the Food and Agriculture Organization. And she quotes from a report that they, they have in 93, where they say, quote, notwithstanding the justification for their imposition, the sanctions have caused persistent deprivation, severe hunger, and malnutrition for a vast majority of the Iraqi population, particularly the vulnerable groups, children under five, expectant slash nursing women, the elderly, and disabled, end quote. That is in 1993. And these sanctions continue for another decade. And it's very clear, and what I find uh, still more ironic is that they were justified in the point of uh, they were going to be targeted and used against and most affected the Iraqi regime, Saddam Hussein regime. It is these sanctions that helped essentially lead to, of course, the social situation, which I've just quoted from, but also the infrastructure suffered. Iraq's infrastructure suffered during this time because of the sanctions. So then the invasion occupation happens. And what has to now be uh, rebuilt is Iraq's infrastructure, in part because of the sanctions. And so the U.S. and its partners, because of their very own policies for a decade, are now forced to pay for the rebuilding of Iraq's infrastructure, which is not damaged because of the invasion, predominantly not damaged. Of course, some areas were targeted, some infrastructure was targeted, for sure. But if you read the reports, they say that, uh, in fact, a great deal of infrastructure wasn't targeted, but it still needed to be rebuilt. And so they plow in for the first decade of, you know, after the invasion, 220 billion U.S. dollars is spent on, this is according to the World Bank. World Bank issues a report three years ago and it says 220 billion U.S. dollars were spent on reconstruction efforts in the first decade after the invasion. And the gains were very little. And so there is a kind of a remarkable, to me, again, comparison between these periods and if someone who is not a student of history will find this stunning, and I, uh, I am <laughs> on some level a student of history, but I still find it stunning. Yeah. But I can explain it by saying this is the ways in which these imperial exercises work over many, 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 many years. Dr. Omar Seri is a research associate in the Department of Politics and International Studies at the University of London School of Oriental and African Studies. Sinan Antoun is an award-winning Iraqi poet and novelist and an associate professor at New York University's Gallatin School and co-founder and co-editor of Jadalia. His most recent novel is The Book of Collateral Damage. They spoke with Shahram Aghamir. You just heard the first part of our series marking the 20th anniversary of the invasion and occupation of Iraq. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.
that's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. You can find us on Twitter at Bomina underscore radio or listen to our past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. You can also reach us by email at vominaradio at gmail.com. Please join us next week for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. And thank you for listening.